Well, we began this journey uh, through the book of Mark back on December 27th. If you were with us on the 24th, we had the chairs turned a little different. There wasn't a science fair going on then. But we, we did uh, Jesus' birth in Matthew 1. And I played a song by Andrew Peterson there that kind of recounted the, the, ver- the names in the list there of, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to begin with another um, song by Andrew Peterson. Isn't that a cool name, Andrew Peterson? I like it. I think it's kind of fun. Yeah, took some time there, but we got it. But it begins, it's a song called Rise and Shine, and it's about the birth and death of Jesus Christ. And it says, I remember when the snow fell in December, and the angels flew in pageants and in dreams. When I came home at 6 o'clock from a long, hard day of playing, to the warmth of Mama's cooking, or was it the warmth of Mama's love? There were cardboard pirate ships and mud puddle seas. The backyard was a battleground for cowboys. And Daddy drug me out of bed one early Sunday morning. And I remember how he smiled at me and he said, Rise, rise and shine. And some of you may be here today, you were just felt like you had to come because it's Easter. Well, back in December, we talked about his birth. And Andrew Peterson records it like this. I remember how the shepherds lay in slumber. The angels came and broke them from their dreams. When Mary raised her weary head and Joseph stood there grinning, the world awoke to the coming of a king. There were haystacks for his palace, and a manger was his throne, and a hush fell on that little town of David. The hillside never shined so bright as early Christmas morning. You could almost hear the very heavens sing. And the heavens sang, rise and shine. And we started that book with the birth of Jesus on December 24th, the Thursday night, and then that Sunday we started in Mark 1. If you'll turn with me there, we'll just, I'll just catch up on everything that we've covered over the past 15 weeks. I'm not going to go verse by verse, so just relax. This isn't the world's record for the longest Easter service. But I feel like if you haven't been walking with us through this, you need to be caught up. You need to know where we're coming from. You need to, to be, we all need to be on the same page, literally and, and figuratively speaking. And in Mark chapter 1, uh, we see Jesus had been born, and we see John the Baptist prepare the way, and we see Jesus in 14 of chapter 1. He came and he proclaimed the gospel of God, said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. And so the entire book is he's going to be showing us, proclaiming the good news, and he's going to be performing miracles to attest to that good news that God became man to save sinners from sin so that men might be with God forever. And we looked at Jesus' mission in chapter 1 and then we, see, we saw opposition in chapter 2. They opposed Him in His healings. They opposed Him in the people He hung out with. They opposed Him because of their religion. And then in chapter 3, we took a few minutes, actually the whole time, to talk about those 12 that He chose and we saw that they were ordinary people. And it's just like we are. We're ordinary people who follow an extraordinary Savior. And in chapter 4, he gave us his teaching on the parables and he showed us about the kingdom of God. That those who are saved by grace enter into the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ reigning over that kingdom right now in heaven. He will come back to establish it on earth. 
And then at the end of chapter 4, we saw that he was, he was all-powerful over disaster. At the beginning of chapter 5, he was all-powerful over demons. At the end of chapter 5, he was all-powerful over de- death and disease. And we saw that this is the power of our Savior. That the good news that he proclaims is just showing us who he is and we are to cling to him. And then in 6, we saw something just as extraordinary, the power of unbelief. In 6, verse 6, Jesus marveled in his humanity because of their unbelief. Miracle after miracle after miracle, sermon after sermon, and his own people rejected him, walked away from him. And so he sends the 12 out to proclaim this good news. And then in 7, we backed up and we talked about legalism. And for some of you, uh, maybe that you're just joining us here today, that may be all you know of the church is legalism. Imposed rules apart from the Scripture, and you think, I want to have nothing to do with that. Well, we, sh- we expose that no, those are just heart issues. What comes from a person is what defiles them. From out of the heart come evil desires, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. And Jesus said it's not about legalism, it is about grace. And in chapter 8, we came to a verse 34 where Jesus basically said, this is what it costs to follow me. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then in 9, we saw a verse, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last, or he or she must be last. And so it's a sacrificial, humble commitment to the king. And then in chapter 10, we looked at a rich young man whose wealth in this world kept him from giving it all to Jesus. He went away sad because he trusted more in his wealth and his status and in his worldly possessions than he did the King of Kings. And then in chapter 11, Eric walked us through the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, the lesson from the withered fig tree. And at the end of that chapter through chapter 12, his authority is a challenge. Who are you? How do we know we can trust you? How do you deal with the government? How do you deal with the afterlife? And Jesus answered every question, so much so, and he answered them well, that no one dared ask him any more questions. Chapter 13, he didn't leave us without information on the end times. We know what's going to happen because of the Olivet Discourse. And in last week, In chapter 14 through 15, 15, we walked through Jesus being adored, Jesus being betrayed, Jesus being rejected both by the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, and right up to the end where he was scourged and delivered to be crucified. And that is where we find ourselves today. If you have a handout, you should see it's broken into basically two parts. Two halves of Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. That's Mark 15, 16 through 47. And then we'll see he was raised to life for our justification. That's 16, 1 through 8. And so we're just going to walk through. This is a great text for any budding preacher to preach because all you do is you walk through the text. The text preaches itself. There is no um, question as to what's going on. And so we pick it up in Mark 15, 16. And it said, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters or the the praetorium, and they called together the whole battalion or the cohort, 600 Roman soldiers. One man, 
600 Roman soldiers. And in 17 through 20, they mock him. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They, they were amused at his claim. If you're such a king, here's your robe and here's your crown. And they were striking him on the head with a reed. You know what that means in the Greek? They were striking them on the head, striking him on the head with a reed. He was hit on his skull for our sin. And they were spitting on him, humiliating him. And kneeling down in mockery, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Interesting note there. Normally, in crucifixion, you would have your clothes stripped from you and then you would be scourged on the way to the cross. But his scourging, as we saw in 15 last week, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. He had already been scourged. He had already put his hands, if you've seen the movie, on a rock. And they took a weapon with long leather strips with glass and shard at the end. And one of those guards whipped him and then raked it across his back. And we saw last week that connection by his stripes. By his stripes. We are healed. And so he's received verbal abuse. He's received physical abuse. And the lamb is now led to the slaughter. And he goes and he doesn't say a thing. To fulfill Isaiah 53. And so they clothe him. He's already been scourged. And they march him through the city to be humiliated in front of all the people. And as he was walking in verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon the Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, I love the detail. It takes you in because when you start to read Romans, you see Alexander and Rufus, you say, this happened. This is real. This is not put together. This was a real man. And you can actually go and see because of archaeology, which continues to prove the Scriptures, an ossuary with Simon the Cyrene, who says, or of Alexander, son of Simon the Cyrene. It's provable. Christianity is provable. And so Jesus, who had been scourged, who had been up all night, who had been struck in the head, who had been spit on, was weary. And they have Simon help him carry his own implement of destruction outside the city because by Roman and Jewish law, you could not be crucified within city limits. And so, verse 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place the skull, the place of death. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which was a narcotic, which would help numb the pain. And guess what he did? He didn't take it. He promised he would not take it in chapter 14, and he didn't take it. Had he taken it, it might be lead away for some who say, I'm going through so much pain, I'll just numb it. He did not. And he moved on. And there you see it. 
the truth of it. It's said just bluntly, plainly, simply, without a lot of discussion. We need to describe it because we wouldn't understand, but they crucified Him. That is, the crucifixion included a scourging. It included humiliation as you walk to your death. It included being lifted up on a cross. And it was death by exhaustion. That they would put His hand on that beam and they would put His other hand on that beam and He would lay there and He would be sinking down and to get a breath He'd have to push His hands against that beam and that pain would just be excruciating. That's where we get the term from the cross. Excruciating pain. And it was a long process for most. Cicero, a Roman philosopher of the time, said this is the grossest, cruelest, most hideous manner of execution. Josephus, a Jewish historian, said this is the most wretched of all ways of dying. And as I've just said, we get the word excruciating from this idea that he was crucified. Because he had his garments, they divided his garments and they casted lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour, it was 9 a.m., on a Friday. And when they had crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, and this is all it read, the King of the Jews. That's it. See, the Jews wanted it to say, and John tells us this, so he said he was the King of the Jews, and Pilate said, it's written. No criminal offense except he is the king of the Jews. And like we looked at on that December 24th, Matthew 2 said, here is the one born. Not would become, but this is the one born, king of the Jews. And they crucified him. And with him they crucified two robbers. One on his right, one on his left. And then, if you notice, in some translations it goes from 27 to 29. The verse 28 should be a fulfillment of Isaiah. It's mostly in your marginal notes. And the Scripture was fulfilled that He was numbered among the transgressors. Always going back. If you want to see a prophecy of His death and resurrection, go to Isaiah 53. He was numbered among the criminals. And so He's... He's incurred physical abuse, verbal abuse. He's exhausted, and then it keeps going on. Verse 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Wagging their heads. This caught me this week. They just, they just despised Jesus. What is this? What? We know he was lifted up because they had to tie something on the sponge on the end of a pole and they're wagging their heads. A sign of just unbelief. Why? How could this happen? And they say, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. See, they still missed what he was talking about. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, and by the way, they didn't know what they were saying. But you and I do. He saved others. He cannot save himself. You're right. Had it been me on the cross, I might have said, exactly. (laughs) You don't get it, do you? But that's just me in the sinful flesh 
who sometimes doesn't know how to control his mouth. But Jesus, like a lamb led to the slaughter, did not open up his mouth. In fact, the only thing we hear from his voice to these wagging heads is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They know not what they do. And it amazes me that they would say that. He saved others and he cannot save himself. They didn't realize the truth of that statement. It was like Caiaphas who predicted as high priest that year that one man should die for the nation. Exactly. To which John says later, he didn't know what he was saying, but he actually said something that was true. Same thing here. He saved others. Look around. He couldn't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Except one, who I think, like the prodigal son in Luke, comes to his senses and he looks over at the other criminal and he says, this man's innocent. We're, we're being crucified for just reasons. And he cries out, will you remember me? On the cross, still ministering to people on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. The last convert before his death. Keep note of that. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour from noon to three. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma, sabachthani, which means, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, he cries out Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A psalm um, written by a mourning psalmist to appeal to God to intervene on behalf of the righteous. He cries it out in His humanity, knowing what He's doing for the entire world, for the sins of the world. He cries it out. Because, my friends, He has not only endured physical pain. He's not only endured emotional humiliation. He became a curse. All the sins of the world of all time were upon Him at that time. All of them. And, for, and we cannot reconcile this. There's no need. But for a time, a period of time, God the Father withdrew and turned His face away from God the Son. He had to. First John said, Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. Not a, anything that He did on His own, but for our sins. A propitiation is a is something offered to satisfy the wrath of someone who is justly wrathful against something else, i.e., God is justly wrathful against sin. And there He turned His way, His face from His Son. He had to. And Isaiah 53, in, in a mystery that only God knows, it pleased Him. Because God sees the bigger picture. Jesus sees the bigger picture. This had to happen. There's no back door. If you're going 
from gypsum to Glenwood Springs and there's a problem, you can go another direction, can't you? And it takes a long time to get there. There's no other way. Jesus said it in John 14. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father through me. Had to happen. Why have you forsaken me? And it's like that prayer that he prayed in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. Some of the bystanders hearing it, again, misunderstood. He must be calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put on a reed and, and gave it to him. This holding up to him because they were confused. Wait, let, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Still not getting the picture that there is a God who exists. He wants to have fellowship with those whom He created. Those whom He created are sinful and cannot have fellowship with Him apart from being holy. Therefore, God had to send His Son to die in their place. They still were not understanding that. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. He cried and He died. And you know what? He did it on His own volition. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. He stuck in to the end. He stuck in to the very end. He knew what He had to go through for you and I and He stuck it in to the end. And then this is where it starts to turn. That, that darkness through that movie, there's that darkness that hovers over and there's that gleam of light. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And Andrew Peterson captures it best. I remember how the sunlight turned to thunder and the people ran from shelter from the rain. Curtain tore and the saints awoke and the whole world seemed to tremble. Catch this. From the fury of God's anger. Or was it the fury of God's love? Yes. Yeah. It was both. There were shadows on the tomb there in the garden and the mist was rising slowly through the trees. We'll get there in a second. And When Mary saw the silhouette on early Easter morning... I remember how he smiled at her and said, Rise. The curtain, it's torn in two, top to bottom. It's an irreversible act. And Hebrews 10.19 says that we come boldly into the holies of holies because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It was torn in two. That system is gone. It is obsolete, says the book of Hebrews. And now we can approach God by the blood of Christ. Was it the fury of God's wrath or the fury of His love? Yeah. It was both. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that Son was a propitiation for our sins and not only our sins but the sins of the whole world. It was the fury of God's wrath and it was the fury of God's love. And if you can't put those two together, that's okay but you can't deny one for the other. You can't be because God was 
quote Psalm 7 and God was wrathful at sin every day and just see God is up here and is angry. That's not true. And it's not just a God that's grandfatherly and all He ever does is love. That's not true. It's the fury of God's wrath and it's the fury of God's love together at the cross. It's satisfied. And so when God looks upon me, even in the weeks that I'm a wicked, evil sinner, and that's what you've got to call it because if you call it anything less, you're not calling sin, sin. And when you don't love people, that frustrates God. But He looks at me and He goes, oh, my son died for you. And He's interceding for him every single day. That's what amazing grace is. I didn't do anything. Yeah, I did. I did. I sinned. I did my part. And so we have a thief on the cross who says, we're, we're here up here justly. He's not. Will you remember me today? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then the centurion here in 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last and said, he said, truly, Truly, this man is the Son of God. And most people believe, and I agree with them, this is one put in this profession of faith. That's the Son of God. First convert after his death. And then the beauty of the Scriptures is from 40 through 16.8. The most people besides children, the people that were most despised in that culture were women. And what does the Bible do? It lifts them up. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came from Jerusalem. The Bible lifts up women. The Bible lifts up women. The world would say, oh no, you guys don't lift up women. Yes, if they wanted to give a more credible account, they wouldn't have put this in here. But they wanted to give a true and accurate account and it shows that God cares for everyone at the cross. And when evening had come, since it was day, the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, another gospel says who was also himself a disciple of Christ, took courage. I love that. He's now associating himself with, with, with Jesus who hasn't even ra- been raised from the dead yet. Took courage. He's looking for the kingdom of God. He's become a disciple of Christ and in some way he says, you know what, I need to go and bury him. And he went and he asked Pilate for the body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. But all that he went through, the other Gospels account that he he had been dead. And so I think it's in in between here that Pilate sins and the centurion pokes his side, blood and water come out. It's confirmed he's dead. And some in the centurion, he asked him whether he is already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. For Joseph to get Jesus down, whether it is he took him, however he got up on a ladder and took him down or he 
lays the cross down to get him off the cross, he had to pull one hand. First, he had to pull that nail out. And he had to pull that nail out. And he had to put his hand here. Pick him up. Puts him down and he gives him a proper burial. They laid him in a tomb. They rolled a stone across. And Mary's are, the Marys are back there just watching. And I'm sure they're weeping. Wow. Wow. Man. So we go a Saturday. And it was the Sabbath had passed. Sunday morning, this is where we get our Easter sunrise service. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, that's why our calendars begin on Sunday, when the sun had risen, and they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, I'm sure they're walking up the road, what's going to, I mean, we saw Joseph and they put the stone in front of it. There's guards out there. What's, what are we going to do? Who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, I just saw the stone had been rolled back. I love this. Thank you, Mark. It was very large. <laughs> Appreciate that. I was, I was confused for a little bit. But it was very large. And it's open. So they go and they enter the tomb. And they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Who's this? And he said, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. And here's where we get our phrase. He is risen. He is not here. See? He kind of probably points. See the place where they lay him? And I love the other Gospels account for this. It's beautiful. Upon Peter and John hearing from this, they run to the tomb and they go in and they saw what he was wrapped in folded. I like that. Folded. Little account. Students, fold your clothes. Jesus folded his clothes. It was folded. He gets up, you know. I don't know what it looks like, but he folds it. And he goes. And the other accounts, these women come in And they're alarmed. They're just amazed. Might this be? And he says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now they're starting to remember. Ah, yes, he said these things. Now watch this in verse 8. Peculiar verse. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The exact opposite. But it kind of culminates this entire book of the disciples of Jesus need to be reminded over and over and over again of who He is, what He came to do, and now He lives, sits at the right hand of God because we always forget. All throughout the book, they forgot. Walk in single file, who's the greatest? And they're arguing and Jesus has to turn around and say, What was your question? And not being at the Last Supper and not getting, Jesus had told him three times he had to go 
die and be raised again. And it's for us. We're to go, we do the same thing. We're astonished, but then there's this fear. But eventually, praise God, eventually, they would get the good news that Mary, another gospel reports, as, as the two, the other ladies left, Mary Magdalene was there and she sees Jesus and she falls down weeping. Mary Magdalene, he, Paul tells us, he goes to Peter, then the disciples, and then some 500 at one time. And you see from the other gospels, there's the two on the road to Emmaus. The rest of this book, it's not without its difficulties, but it ends that He appeared to those people and He gave them an assignment in verse 15, go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. He was crucified. As the verse says there, He was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. We do stand free. We can sing that song. My chains, they're gone. They're gone. Are there days when it's, I want to go put my chains back on? All of us do. When one way or the other, I'll just go put these chains back on. Or we, worse yet, we want to pick up that, that curtain. Right? It's torn in two from top to bottom. And this is what we want to do every day. I'm going to go ahead and sew this baby back up. I know what's best. No. It's been torn. You've been freed. We're not without flaw. Some can attest to that to me this week. But we're free and forgiven. We're forgiven because He was forsaken. And He would appear to those disciples and those disciples would go to others and the others would create what we call the early church. It's captured from Romans through Revelation. And then that early church, Paul would go from Rome to Spain and eventually the true story, let me just tell you, tell you, you heard it here, the true story of St. Patrick's is actually a British guy who would get over to Ireland. That's what it's about. It's not about leprechauns and, and leaves. It's about a guy who was a slave and when he got free went to seminary and then he went back to Ireland because he saw a dark land and it should give us great hope. And from Ireland and England, there were some Puritans there in England. They got on a boat and they came over to America. And I don't know how it got from Jamestown, but somehow it got to Jinx, Oklahoma. Had an FCA meeting. 87, big hair, 87. And a young kid was at a meeting. Do you realize that if you were to die tonight, apart from Jesus, you would go to hell? That you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and there's Nothing you can do. Really? Fourteen. So if, the, if you think that's you tonight, will you bow your head? You go through that. And if that's you who's bowed your head, will you raise your hand? And then the moment in my life, if that's you, I can see it. Would you look up? 
I wanted to bow my head. I can easily write, would you look up? And I look up. From Jerusalem, Galilee. Let's do it. So you, Jerusalem, England, America, Oklahoma. And however, that from Texas to Eagle to today. April 4th, 2010. Jesus didn't just pass out. He didn't have a twin. It's a great. There's no. That's the worst of all of the other resurrection stories. That's the worst. There's absolutely no historical record that Jesus ever had a twin. Oh, Jesus leaves his body and his spirit as a spirit before his death. No. Jesus' followers hallucinated at the cross. It's usually a personal experience, not attested by others. And it would be an awful lot of hallucinations. And his body was stolen by the disciples who then went out and buried him somewhere else and lived like that. No. It was prophesied in Jewish scriptures. We know he lived and we know he died from other accounts at that time. Cicero, Josephus, other Mishnah and Torah, not the Torah, but the Talmud talk about this Jesus who lived and died. And shortly after his death, it's recorded, and it's just because there's different angles doesn't mean it's not true. In fact, to say that the people who recorded this were any less intelligent is what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery, that they're just less intelligent back then, and we have progressed, end quote, let me, since the science is here, evolved. That's just not the case. This New Testament all but the book of John, maybe in John's epistles, were accounted for within the first 100, well, all of them then, were accounted for in the first 100 years after his death. Some of them within the first 20 to 30. And it records the remarkable life and death of our Savior. And not just death, but his resurrection. And because of his resurrection, because he came back, and, and Thomas, he says, just put your finger right there. And other 500, because their lives are transformed and they live a loyal life to this one called Jesus Christ and their character is vastly different. Read church history books. Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley quotes non-Christian historians saying these lovers of Jesus are different. They're the ones starting the orphanages. Transformed life, lives of character, lives that are loyal and lives as you see today following that same path. It takes more faith to be an, an atheist than to just simply read one of the most accredited documents of all time. We base part of our government off Plato's Republic. Not that many copies of it. We build philosophy off Aristotle and Cicero. You've got this. Thousands of copies. And it just tells a simple story about an old, it's an old, old story about a rugged cross and a God-man who came to save sinners.
Father, we stop. We don't want to just go through the drive-thru get a couple paragraphs of Scripture to keep us full until next week. We stop. And we thank you for the book of Mark that shows us our sin and how forgetful and how hard-hearted we can be. But more importantly, it shows us our Savior and how wonderful kind, gentle, how he would not allow his disciples then to walk in ignorance and to walk in sin. He would rebuke them and correct them, and he does for us today. But we love it most because it just tells the simple story how one man had to lose his life so that from now on those of us who have trusted in Jesus we're at peace we're going to be with you forever the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to you we'll never get over it we'll continue to learn And in 365 days from now, Lord, we'll do it again. May we live in the power, as Paul preached in Philippians 3, the power of the resurrection, to know your Son. May we live in that power for the rest of our days. It's in his name I pray. Amen.